0: Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning in to our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. The title of my message today is Great Expectations. Great Expectations. Uh, not so much Charles Dickens, but a little bit more the way that we set things up in our minds, in our heads. You guys ever, have you guys ever done this where you built something up in your mind and in your heart about how it was going to look and how it was going to go, and then it just turned out to be completely different than what you'd expected? Has anybody else ever done that? Like, maybe it's just me. Um, vacations, family vacations, I feel like are a really great... Low-hanging fruit, easy example of this. Like, you just think it's going to be this magical fairy tale of a time away. It's going to be so restful, right? Some of you are already, like, laughing. Like, it's going to be so relaxing. We're all just going to love each other and get along the entire time. Like, maybe you take your kids to an amusement park or something. Maybe you go to, go to Disney. You pay $50 billion to go to Disney, right? And you get there, and you're like, oh, it's the happiest place on earth. But then you realize, man, this is actually, the lines are kind of super, super long, and there's people everywhere, and the food costs a million dollars, and the kids start to get cranky, right? And it's really, really hot, and you've got sweat dripping in places that you didn't know it could. And like, everybody, the kids are like, oh, I want to go back to the hotel and watch cartoons. He's like, you're living cartoons in Disney right now. Like, you, if you've never done it, you've seen it somewhere else. Like, that family just having that, that cosmic meltdown. Like, you will have fun because I paid for this, right? <laughs> like, we've all, we've all done it. Like, small scales, big scales, we've been there. Like, you think it's going to be this magical experience, and it doesn't always uh, pan out that way, does it? I remember uh, a few years back, I had the privilege of officiating uh, the wedding of my my childhood best friend, going to my best buddy, and his beautiful his beautiful new wife, and uh, so we went up up for kind of where I was born and raised, Perth Andover, New Brunswick. Went up there, and we were Carrie and I were uh, were walking with them, and 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 you know got to officiate the wedding, and so as as the officiant, and then kind of as the best friend of the groom. You know how weddings go if you've ever been a part of them. There's a couple days leading up. There's all the festivities and all the families showing up from all the corners of the earth, and you're meeting people, extended family matter, members that that you're probably never going to see again anyway, right? And people from from both sides, and so all these people are meeting, and it's all the all the introductions, you know. And so I'm meeting people from the bride's side of the family, all of her siblings, nieces and nephews, people that I've never seen again since, and uh, I, and I probably probably never will. And uh, so, but you're you're going through all those introductions, and the night before at the rehearsal dinner and things like that, right? And we're just kind of socializing and hanging out. And then the bride's uh, had a niece and a nephew there; they were kind of the youngest ones that were that were at the gathering, and so they were there, and we're just kind of making small talk throughout the evening and hanging out. Uh, There was a Nintendo there, and so I grabbed a controller at one point, and we were kind of playing Nintendo and joking around with this niece and nephew a little bit, and we're eating and just kind of having fun, and so we went home, woke up the next day, uh, had the ceremony, it's beautiful, we laughed, we cried, all of that, and uh, and then we moved on to the reception a few hours later, right? And at the reception, after we've been there, after I've officiated the ceremony with my friends, uh, we're at the reception, and I just happened to cross paths. With the niece that I had met the night before for the very first time and I've never seen again. And uh, we're just kind of crossing paths there at the reception, walking between the tables or something like that. And we kind of bumped into each other and I said hi. And she stopped and she stepped back and she just looked at me. And she just stared at me for a couple of minutes. I haven't seen her since the night before, right? And she's just staring at me. And she kind of like takes a step forward and leans in a little bit, her eyes narrow in suspicion. And she says, so you were the priest this whole time, huh? Like, this whole time I was hanging out with you and we talking with you and you never told me that you were the priest. And like, I just started dying laughing. I guess I wasn't what she expected, right, of a, of a priest. It's not the first time I've been called, uh, not the first time I've been called a priest. And then that same, that same day, that same day, we had another crazy experience where my wife, uh, who's, who's just an amazing friend and an amazing baker, she had offered to, to bake all the cupcakes for the wedding. So they weren't doing a traditional wedding cake; they were doing cupcakes, you know, hipster, keeping it cool. And uh, so she decided to build all these kind of cupcake cupcake towers for them. And you can imagine how much work that would be, right, to make all of these cupcakes for a wedding. And uh, so she's got them all done on the day we, the day of the wedding. I'm up and got my suit on, all ready to roll. Everything all in place. And she's putting the final touches on all these cupcakes. And then she's handing me the boxes. And I'm taking them outside and putting them into the vehicle, right, to be safely transported to the location of the reception eventually later on in the day. So we were up, like I said, up kind of with my family. So we were driving my dad's Ford Flex, if anybody remembers those, okay. And so the beauty of this vehicle is that it has these little seats that fold down perfectly flat in the back, right. Like so perfectly even stable service. I'm taking all these boxes of cupcakes and I'm just putting them in like Tetris, like one, two, three, four. They're all perfectly flat, perfectly stable. Like this is an amazing way to trans. It's like, it's like cake boss level. Like this is absolutely perfect and pristine right now. And so we get them all in there. She hands me the last box, take it outside, slide it into the back of my dad's Ford Flex and it has one of those automatic lift gates, you know, where you just push the button and then the lift gate kind of closes. So I get all the cupcakes in all packed down and I look over again, not my vehicle, so not super familiar with all the controls and the mechanisms, but I look over and I see the button right there with a little, with a little folding icon, right? And I'm like, oh, well, that's the, that's the liftgate button. <laughs> you guys already know exactly where this is going. So I hit the liftgate button, and I take a step back, and I wait for this thing to just, just admiring my work, right? My dad's out there with me and just waiting for this liftgate to come down, and the door doesn't move. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I start hearing this little like sound. And you know exactly what happened. Like, for some reason, there's like 70 different buttons, and they all do different things. I hit the one that folds up the seats. And so they went from being perfectly flat to start folding up. So it's just like slowly like this, right? And I'm watching all these boxes of cupcakes just come up like this and just start to, like, crumple into each other. And so obviously my dad and I are freaking out, so we're running around trying to grab these seats and just reefing on these seats, trying to stop. It probably broke his car. I don't know. But once you, once you push the button, by the way, there's kind of no going back. Like, those seats, are do, they're going to do their thing. And so they're snapping and cracking. And then so eventually, like, all hell breaks loose, and then we just kind of stop. And in the aftermath and the carnage, we're just I'm just, like, completely dumbfounded. And I look over at my dad, and he's looking at me, looks the same way, and he goes, you're dead. Like, (laughs) you just, (laughs) you are. And then so I'm like, I have no idea what I'm gonna do here. And so I I have to go inside. Carrie's finishing getting ready. Like, we're 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 obviously running late. You know, it's a wedding, we've gotta get there. I've gotta officiate, I can't be late. And uh, so I go inside, and I'm like, babe, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but my dad's Ford Flex just ate approximately 75% of your salted caramel cupcakes. Uh, with a candy bacon garnish, like they're just like they're destroyed. <laughs> and uh, so she, she didn't even believe me. I had to convince her and coax her that I'd actually done this horrible thing. And uh, anyway, we, we made it work. We got back inside. She was piping extra frosting. We had some extras. We were like swapping out all the damaged ones. And we got to the wedding, and no one was the wiser. Nobody had any idea. But that is not what I expected when I woke up that morning, <laughs> not how I expected that day to go. And I know that we've all had days like that, right? You guys can laugh at me. It wasn't funny at the time. But we've all had those days, haven't we? Like just one of those days when it rains, it pours. Murphy's Law. We like to talk about anything that can go wrong, will go wrong, right? We've all had those days. You always get a flat tire when you're already running late for work. That just seems to be the way that it goes. And I think that for us as people, as human beings, we just tend to be optimists, don't we? We tend to, you know, want to, want to believe for the best. Some of us are better at this than others, but we just tend to want to believe that, you know what, this is going to be good, and it's all going to work out, and it's going to be an amazing vacation. Uh, my family is going to be perfect. We're going to be healthy. Like, we're going to have a good job. We're always going to have enough money. Things are always going to go well. But many of us have lived long enough to know that life doesn't always go that way, does it? And that there are times, like some of them funny, like losing my cupcakes and then other ones not so funny, like losing, losing a job. Or what do we do when, we, when, the, when, that, when that scan reveals a tumor? Or what do we do when an addiction is just destroying somebody that we love? Or what do we do when we experience relational fallout? Like what happens when we believe in a God that is kind and loving and gracious and all-knowing and all-wise, yet our lives from time to time, even those of us who follow Jesus and would say we do everything right, our lives from time to time are still marked and punctuated with pain and suffering. And any of us who follow Jesus will, if you haven't already, you will have moments where Jesus seems to do the exact opposite of what we would have expected him to do in a given circumstance. And some of the things and the roads that we're asked to walk are are difficult and our heart, and the questions that come up in those moments are very, very difficult to reconcile in our lives. I, for me, it's just so easy, and I think for most of us, it's so easy for me to believe that God is good and that he loves me when I'm in the promised land and the milk and honey is flowing freely, right? I love me some milk and honey. Like That's just like when everything is good, when we're on the mountaintops, it's so easy to believe that God is good, but what happens when I'm asked to walk in the desert for a season? What happens when, when things are, are more difficult and life gets more raw and real? You know, I'm, I'm, I can go from God is so good and loves me so much to everything is broken and this sucks and I hate it a lot quicker than I'm comfortable admitting to you here today. I mean, I just did, so. But that's, that's real, I think, for so many of us, isn't it? Like, that so much can change so quickly. And I'm so full of faith and I'm such a good follower of Jesus. And then as soon as things get difficult... It's it's just so easy to start to throw it all out the window and say, God, why would you let this happen to me? We all have expectations, I think, for how our lives are going to turn out, who our kids are going to marry, what they're going to look like, what kind of job we're going to have, what our retirement is going to look like, how the government is going to operate and conduct themselves on our behalf, how our relationships are going to function. Like we all have those kinds of expectations, and being a pastor, you know, I've had a front row seat for many years to just so many stories of how life doesn't always, many times it does, and it's amazing, but life doesn't always turn out picture perfect and peachy keen the way that I think that we oftentimes expect it to as human beings in our minds and in our hearts. And those great expectations that we have on God and on our lives sometimes can feel misplaced, can't they? And sometimes when we have those expectations of what the, we talk about the favor of God in church all the time, what the favor of God is going to actually look like in our lives when those expectations aren't met, it causes pain. It causes brokenness, and I think that those mismanaged and misplaced expectations are not are not new in in Scripture at all. When we encounter the story of uh, of John the Baptist here today, and uh, if you've been around church long, I mean you've you've heard you've heard about John the Baptist before, and and you know you know his story, and kind of know who he is, a disciple of of Jesus, when Jesus was born uh, into the nation of Israel, he wasn't one of the twelve disciples, but he was a follower of Jesus. Um, when Jesus was born into the nation of Israel, even in that that kind of point in history, the the Jewish people, the chosen nation of God, the nation of Israel would have been wrestling and and trying to reconcile their own identity. We're the chosen, favored people of God, but now we're living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And all of those promises that God spoke over us, you know, we haven't heard the voice of God in over 400 years. Years. By the time Jesus showed up on the scene, it had been 400 years since the last Old Testament prophet had spoken on behalf of God, since they had received any kind of real word or new rhema word or promise from God. And so you just and it's easy to say 400 years. You think about how long that actually is. Like Canada is barely 150 years old. The USA is barely 250 years old. So we are talking generations upon generations upon generations of just seeming silence from God. And now they're here and they're under the impression of the Roman Empire. And this is what Jesus is born into. And then we see John the Baptist. I mean, he is one of the uh, kind of most colorful and mysterious figures that we see throughout the Gospels and throughout that story. Uh, he, was, he was a distant cousin of Jesus, probably. Um, he, he was a distant relative of Jesus. Uh, he, was, he was a miracle child of Elizabeth and Zachariah. And the angel foretold his birth just like Jesus. So they had a lot of kind of similarities in their setups. And uh, the Old Testament talked about a second Elijah that would come. Uh, Elijah was another crazy uh, Old Testament prophet that had some bedtime stories that would make your grandmother's hair curl, okay? And uh, the Old Testament foretold of a second Elijah that would come and prepare the way for the Messiah, prepare the way for Jesus. So John the Baptist was a literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy kind of a kind of a heavy role i don't know if you if you any of you watched the chosen or not if you've seen that show i mean i know pastor brent talks about it a lot i just can't recommend it enough it is it is an amazing amazing show and i love how they portray john the baptist in the chosen uh like he the, the bible talks about him um wow that image looked a lot better when i pirated it off of google i gotta i gotta say Uh, Sorry, sorry, chosen, but uh, John the Baptist is like, like the Bible describes him as being the guy who like, he wore camel hair, and he ate locusts and honey, and he was just, he was out in the wilderness all the time, he wasn't very, he wasn't very civilized, and the way the chosen portrays him is just, just amazing, he's just kind of, he's just kind of kooky, Peter, Simon, uh, you know, Jesus' most famous disciple that we read about, he calls him creepy John constantly, in, in the chosen, like, like they say, John the Baptist, people will say, John the baptizer and he's like, You mean creepy John, right? And uh, so this is creepy John, John the Baptist, and just kind of a wild, eccentric dude, uh, was an amazing speaker. He held no power in the Jewish political system, uh, he had no kind of authority that anybody should listen. But when he spoke and when he taught, when he fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies and prepared the way for Jesus, something about what he said captivated people to the point. Where they would leave the towns and cities and go out into the wilderness to hear this man speak about Jesus. And then here in our passage in Matthew chapter 11, we see this as John the Baptist, who was in prison, sends a message to Jesus. So just a little bit of backstory here. Uh, the king, Herod Antipas at the time had, was playing kind of swapsies with his wives and with his brothers and things like that. And uh, so John basically goes to him and says, hey, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be sleeping with your brother's wife, essentially. Like, goes to the king of Israel. And so obviously you can understand. Herod doesn't want to hear about uh, the Messiah that John is proclaiming, the true king of the Jews. He doesn't want to be told that his soap opera kind of lifestyle is wrong. And so he throws John in prison. He's got all the power here, and John has none. But John calls him out and wounds up thrown in prison. And for a guy like John, it's just so easy to read that, who was in prison. But for a guy like John who spent his life in the wilderness... You know, he was outside, he didn't, he didn't even have a normal house. You know, he was an outside, live off the land kind of guy. Some of us can relate to him, right? And to go from that to being thrown into a prison cell, probably a dungeon, probably very little, if any, natural light where he was reaching out to Jesus from this moment. This is a, this is a low point in John's life. Like you want to talk about expectations. Have you been raised to believe that you are the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy and your role is to prepare the way for the Messiah when you're out there and you're preaching in the wilderness and in the desert and hundreds, probably thousands of people are coming to hear you and hear your messages and you're baptizing enough of them that they start to call you John the Baptizer. Like that probably felt like exactly what he expected when Jesus said, when God called him to, you know, be the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. I'm sure he wasn't picturing ending up in this prison cell. I'm sure he wasn't picturing himself just rotting away in this, like, this dark, nasty dungeon. But this is where he's reaching out to Jesus from in this moment, this really low season of his life. And I know a lot of us can relate to John. Some of us can relate to John and that place in our lives right now that would say that like it just feels like life has me imprisoned right now, like I I can't I can't see the light anymore. There was a day where I could feel it on my face and I could see it and I could believe that it was so easy to believe that God was good, but right now I just if I'm being honest, Andy, I just don't I just don't see it. And this is exactly where John is reaching out to Jesus from right now. I think it would have been easy for John to say, you know, I, I did all the right things, right? We do that sometimes, don't we? Like, Jesus, why would you let this happen? I've I've been going to church. I've been bringing my kids. Like, I even drop some money in the bucket sometimes. God, I don't, I don't cuss any more than is absolutely necessary, right? Like, just, like, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing my best here, God. So why why are these bad things happening to me? And if you've ever felt like that, then you can relate to exactly how John is feeling here right now. But he sends a message to Jesus from prison, probably the lowest point in his life. And he asks this really kind of... Uh, kind of a forward question he says are you the Messiah that we've been expecting or should we keep looking for somebody else what's he really saying here He's like, are you, are you actually going to do all the things? Like if you actually are the Messiah, the Son of God, and I've been wasting my whole life, like everything I have to prepare the way for you and to get people ready for your message, if you're actually the Messiah, when are you gonna start doing some of the things you promised to do? If you're actually the true king of the Jews, the king of the world, the king of the universe, when are you gonna start to set some of this right? I don't know, maybe we could start with Herod, Right? Maybe we could start with the guy that put me in this cell. Like, it's time for a prison break, Jesus. Come on, let's, let's open up a can right now. Like, I know, I know you can do it. I know you've got the ability. I know you've got the power. Like, all you have to do is say the word, and then Herod has to bow to you. So are you the Messiah or not? are you the one that we've actually been waiting for? Are you the one that I've been spending my whole life preparing the way for? Or should I be looking for somebody else? Like the, the cojones on this guy, right? To like send this to Jesus and to say this to Jesus, right? He's going through just immense pain, immense turmoil in his life. And then Jesus replies to John, and it is so, it's so important what Jesus said. We're gonna unpack this a little bit here today. Jesus says, go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen and he quotes from the old testament here he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, knowing that John would know exactly what he was saying. And he says, go back and tell him everything you've heard and seen. All the things that you're seeing happen around my ministry. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. And the good news is being preached to the poor. Jesus doesn't come back and try to defend himself and say, no, I really am the Messiah. And no, it really is me. And you just had to promise you just to hang on. You just have to wait a little bit longer. He doesn't talk about all the things he's claiming to be. He says, "Look at all the things that I'm doing. Look at all the things that are happening around us. All the amazing miracles we're seeing. That people are being healed and set free." Jesus says, "Let the evidence speak for itself." And then he, again, he's quoting from Isaiah 61, and it's so important. There's some things here, some nuance that I want us to catch. So I want us to look at Isaiah 61 and see exactly kind of what Jesus is quoting here in this, in this, uh, in this, in this response to john he says the spirit this is this is isaiah 61 so this is hundreds of years earlier kind of prophesying what the messiah was going to look like and what was going to happen when he actually showed up and was on the scene it says the spirit of the sovereign lord is upon me for the lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor so this is where some of the stuff that jesus is saying he sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim now this is important here that the captives will be released all right, so that's from Isaiah, where, where Jesus is quoting, where the captives will be released, and prisoners will be freed. All right, this is important for John right now. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. I want you to catch that right there, too. I want you to just kind of put this kind of under, under your bonnet for later on. Okay, the Lord's favor, the day of the Lord's favor, and then the day of his anger against their enemies. We're gonna come back to that in a little bit, all right? So Isaiah 61, this is what Jesus is is quoting to John here right now in this moment. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has quoted this. From the passage of Luke, we see this similar thing. Another another, uh, day in Jesus' ministry, the life of Jesus, it says that when Jesus returned to Galilee, Filled with the Holy Spirit's power, reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. I, I hope you're tracking with me on this, right? It's going to pay off, I promise. Just stick with me for a minute. Reports of him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. He's essentially an itinerant preacher at this point. Everywhere he goes, people are handed him the microphone. And when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, all right, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. And then the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. So he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. It's Isaiah 61. And he begins to read from it. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free. There it is again. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then he rolled up the scroll. And handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, just, just staring at him, kind of dumbfounded, right? And he began to speak to them and said, "The scripture that you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day." So Jesus reads this this, this passage from hundreds of years earlier from the prophet Isaiah and says that. Thing That you've been studying and reading and quoting these Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would have had these entire books and scrolls memorized. And Jesus said, you've been looking at this and reading it for thousands and hundreds of years, and it's being fulfilled right now in this moment in real time in me. Like, Mic drop, okay? So Jesus has quoted this more than once, all right? So then one more time, full circle here, back to Matthew 11, back to our passage today, back to what he was saying to the the apostle John. John says, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? And again, look at Jesus' real-time reply to John here right now. What's he say? Go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. And again, he kind of is summarizing Isaiah 61 here. He says, the blind see, the lame walk, Those of leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. What's missing there? Nothing about the captives being released. Nothing about the prisoners being set free in this instance, in this quote right here. You think Jesus accidentally forgot to leave those lines in? Or was he intentionally, not so subtly, saying to John... Listen, what you are asking for and what you were expecting for, what you were hoping for, what you were praying for even, is not going to happen the way that you want it to. That whole piece about the captives being released and the oppressed being set free, it's true and it's going to happen for somebody someday somewhere, but it's not for you right now in this moment. And John never gets out of this prison. He never, he winds up being beheaded for what he does. Like Herod and his wife have a whole thing and she organizes it. And John winds up losing his life because of what he said, because of what he said to Herod. And it's wild to me to think that the way that John would have packaged this whole thing and thought about the whole thing, like put yourself in his shoes in real time like he just wanted he just wanted the messiah to come and kind of flex his cosmic muscles right like i know you can do it they were expecting some conquering king some some dude with a huge sword that was going to come and just upset the whole system and overthrow the Roman Empire. We've heard this before, right? And John's message up to this point had been very harsh. Like if you go back and read in the Gospel of Luke and some of the things that John said, he talked about axes severing roots from trees and talked about the Messiah separating wheat from the chaff and burning the chaff in this eternal fire forevermore. Like very kind of harsh, military, uh, angry language, And that's what he's looking for in the Messiah here today. When's the action going to start? And Jesus totally leaves out the part about the prison break for John, not so subtly saying, listen, man, it's not going to happen the way that you're expecting. It's not going to happen the way that you're hoping. And then he ends with this really incredibly profound statement, which is huge for him then and huge for us now. And then he says, it's not going to happen the way you want it to. You're not going to get the things that you're asking for. And then he goes on to say, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. God blesses the ones who don't fall away because of me. What's he actually saying there? He's saying we're going to be blessed when we're not offended by his hard teachings. We're going to be blessed when we're not offended, or we don't turn away, when he doesn't do things the way that we want him to. When he doesn't answer our prayers maybe the way we wanted we wanted him to and you, and, and you saw this play out in the life of Jesus that people fell away all the time like that they couldn't they couldn't live under his teachings they couldn't they couldn't bear his teachings they couldn't they couldn't die to themselves the way that Jesus was asking them to. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones who had spent their whole lives preparing for him couldn't, bear his teachings, couldn't accept his message. So what they do? They had him tried, not even tried, they just had him murdered as a heretic and said, you can't be the real Messiah because we can't, we can't accept what you're saying. They were offended by what he was saying. The scholar N.T. Wright has a really unique outlook on this. He said, just as wicked people don't like the message of judgment because they think rightly, they're not wrong, that it's aimed at them, Sometimes good people don't like the message of mercy because they think wrongly that people are going to get away with wickedness. You know what the reality is? Is that people can and will be offended by both justice and mercy. That no matter, no matter which side you fall down on, someone is going to be offended. Someone is going to think you should have done the opposite thing. You should, have, you should have been more harsh. You should have been more forgiving. People can be offended so easily. We all can. Whenever our reality falls short of what our expectations in our own life are, like that's the temptation, isn't it? To just walk away and say, maybe, maybe this good God that I believed in like, isn't really so good. Or maybe he's not even real, or maybe he just doesn't, maybe he just doesn't care about me or can't relate to what I'm going through. Or somebody in the church hurts us, right? Like we, we see this, we see this play out all the time. Like that people walk away from the church because someone hurts them or someone wrongs them. And they think, oh man, if that's if that's what the church is, then 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 I don't want it. And we put like even even if you put like we see this all the time, pastors In the news for just being involved in things that they shouldn't be involved in. Listen, your pastors aren't perfect; never are perfect. Even the even the even the the best ones aren't perfect. And whenever we put people on a pedestal that was only designed to sustain the goodness of God, then people will disappoint us every single time. And church hurt. Like we even have we we have that language for it now. Church hurt. I've been I've been hurt. By the church, and I'm not so sure I fit there. I'm not so sure I can be a part of the church anymore. And you know what? Honestly, and again, we see it and play out in the news sadly, the church has been guilty of a lot of the things that people have accused her of over the years. So what do we do when we find ourselves in those kinds of moments and seasons of unexpe- unmet expectation in our own lives? And God, like, how can, how, how can I process this? How can I move forward? What can I do like the same way that John the Baptist was here in this moment? I think there's, I think there's four steps we can take, four easy th- wins we can, we can sort of process through in our lives to manage those unmet expectations. Number one, the easiest thing that we can do is just to get real with ourselves and expect difficulty. All right? If you're taking notes, you can write that one down. I'm going to fly through these real quick, and then we're going to be done. You can expect difficulty. That life is not going to be. We talk about unmet expectations and setting our expectations rightly. Right now, what do I need to do as Andy Broad? I need to just expect that, not in a miserable way, not in like, oh, life sucks and there's nothing I can do about it. I might as well just resign myself to it right now, go home and get in bed and never get out because like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? We've all heard that before. No, that's not the reality at all. God is good and he loves us. There's so many good gifts, but Things will get difficult from time to time. There is no picture-perfect fairy tale where everything is all good all the time. Listen, we live in a broken, fallen world, don't we? We've all experienced it. We've all seen it. There is sickness and pain and death. Like, the death and decay in our world does not play favorites. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care how good you've been or how well you've behaved or any of it. It's just brokenness that eats away at all of us. Things will get difficult from time to time in our lives. You know what? At work, things are going to get difficult. In your marriage, things are going to get difficult. With your kids, things are going to get difficult. All your relationships, things will occasionally get difficult. But our job is to not be easily offended when they do. Our job is to rightly set our expectations so that we can believe and it's still easy to trust that God is good and he loves us, even in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the journey. Offense happens in our lives when we perceive an injustice, right? You think that's true? You can argue with me about that later if you want to. Like, like when, we, when we get offended, it's because we feel like there's been an injustice somewhere. Like somehow you did something to me that wasn't fair or somehow I didn't get something that I deserved. I've, I've done everything right here, God, so things should go pretty well for me. And so it's easy to get offended when we perceive an injustice. That's when people lose sight when they walk when they walk away. That was what was happening there in first century Rome. Like, people were being offended because they were like, God, we're supposed to be your chosen people and now the Roman Empire is here. Like, what's, what's up with this, Jesus? John the Baptist, he's in, this, he's in this cell and Jesus is calling his followers to say, no, 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 like, trust me. Trust that I'm good. Trust that I love you. Trust that I am for you. Things are gonna get hard, but even in the midst of it, I still love you. I still got your back, all right? So, expect difficulty. The next one is to express disappointment. That it's okay to say this sucks. It's okay to say this hurts. It's okay to say like things are really difficult right now and I don't like it. Like you don't have to be Jesus. Like you don't have to white knuckle everything and say oh like everything's gonna be fine I promise. If I can just keep it between the rails. Like it's okay to say to read that. That's why we have a community church. That's why we have a family. Like we come around each other like when one is weak the other is strong. The Apostle Paul said, like, in my weakness, he is made perfect. Like, when things are difficult, like, we don't have to to just say, oh, like, everything's going to be fine. And people ask us how we're doing, and our life is totally falling apart and complete shambles. And it's like, oh, God is good. God is good all the time. He is. But it's okay to say, man, things are really difficult right now, and I could use some help. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And we all need a little bit of help from time to time. You know what? It's okay to express doubt. It's okay to have those moments and those questions to say that oh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure what to do with this in this moment and season of my life. I'm not so sure, God, why you would let this happen. It's okay to dialogue about that. God is big. He can handle our questions. He can handle your doubts, church. Like, that's, that's, that's a word that somebody needs to receive today. Like, John, he handled John's doubts. John straight up was like, listen, are you God or not? Are you the Messiah or not? And what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't say, listen, watch it, pal. Like, there was, there was none of that. He actually went on later on. You can read the rest of Matthew 11 for yourself. He gives John the Baptist to all of his disciples and his followers, this glowing endorsement about what an amazing man John the Baptist is and how he's one of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Like, he's not offended by John's doubt. He's not offended by John's disappointment. But what he does honor is John's faith in the moment. John's faith to be able to say, like, look at everything he's done with his life. Look at how he has wasted himself and spent himself on preparing the way for me. He's going through it right now. He's having a difficult season. Things are hard, and he's asking some hard questions, but I still love him, and I still know what's best for him, and ultimately, even though I'm not going to break him out of prison the way he wants, I have a perfect plan for his life. Jesus isn't offended by your doubts. Sometimes your doubts and questions are even beneficial because they cause us to process things and to work through things in a way that other th- things can't always. So we've got to expect difficulty. We've got to express disappointment. Two more, and then we're done. All right? Are you with me? Are you good? Next thing we've got to do is we have to embrace difference. We have to embrace different. I straight up stole this one from the Chosen. If you're a big Chosen fan, you know uh, Jesus. There's a line in there where Jesus called Matthew. And Matthew's a tax collector, which everybody, all the Jews hated the tax collectors back then. And Peter, Simon Peter, is saying to Jesus, you can't call this guy. He's a tax collector. And Jesus looks at him and says, well, you were a hot mess when I called you. And Peter's like, yeah, but this is different. And then Jesus leans in and put his hands on his shoulder and says, get used to different I love that. It's not in the scripture, but I think it's very implied. I went with embrace different because, you know, alliteration, pastor problems, and we had to do it. But we've got to get, we've got to get, it's for your benefit, okay? But we've got to be able to say, okay, the way that you are going to choose to do things, Jesus, is different than the way I would. Because you're God, and I'm not. John the Baptist had to reconcile himself to that fact, He had to embrace the different, the backwards, the upside-down kingdom of heaven that just operates on a totally different plane than we do. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they all had to get used to that with Jesus and embrace the different. And we need to do that in our lives today. The unmerited, perfect grace, peace, and the gift of Jesus and who he is and the gospel and his good news for all of us, like, that doesn't always process well with us, does it? Because if we feel like, oh, I've got to do something to earn that. I've got to do something to to get into God's good graces. I've got to earn my way into heaven, earn my way. The disciples had to process through that. John had to. We have to. Listen, when the day of God's wrath and anger does finally come, remember that that passage from Isaiah? Like, when that finally comes, like, if, if you've ever felt like, Okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen, like same, same as John was in the prison, right? He was, he was ready for the day of God's wrath right now to rain down and to, to get, so Herod could get his and get what he deserved and John could get out of prison. If we find ourselves at that juncture in our life being like, man, God, I just can't, I can't wait for you to come and to fix this place. I can't wait for that politician to get his. or I can't wait for that person who's blaspheme your name or has hurt, hurt me or hurt hurt my family somehow. I can't wait for that person to get what they deserve. Like if we find ourselves and it's easier to do than we think sometimes, isn't it? If we find ourselves in that kind of posture and the way, waiting for that day of God to come and defeat our enemies on our behalf, I think we're gonna be sorely disappointed. The same way that John was there in prison that day because yeah, it's, it's a promise. God will come and judge things and set things right but it's on his timing, and it's in his style, and it's in his way. And if I know him from what I've read in scriptures, that he's probably gonna do that and handle that very differently than I would if I was him. But my job is to trust him, and trust that he knows best. And the last one is this, and it's super easy, and then we're done. So we're called to embody his perfect design in our lives. How have you been designed? We've been designed as people of hope. Unwavering and unfailing hope. Doesn't mean we're not going to have difficulty. Doesn't mean we're not going to be disappointed. Doesn't mean we're not going to get cancer. Doesn't mean we're not going to lose one of our kids. Doesn't mean life is going to be perfect and easy 100% of the time. But it does mean that we can have hope in him. We need to embody that design. The Apostle Paul, who knew difficulty and knew disappointment, what did he say? He said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Even if I lose my life, I win. When we follow Jesus, we we can't lose. And even when the storm is kind of blowing around us, and even when we want to put our eyes on anything except for him, he loves us, he's patient, he's kind, he's forgiving to us. You know, Jesus went on again the rest of Matthew 11 to say something really profound. And he we was talking, that glowing endorsement that I mentioned about John the Baptist. He's talking about how amazing he is. He says all these incredible things about John the Baptist, but then he says something. He says, even the least of these in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And that's kind of one of those, as the old timers would say, give your head a shake moments, right? Like what, what's Jesus trying to say there? And you know what? I think it's, I think it's because John the Baptist never got to witness the cross. He prepared the way for the Messiah, but he wasn't there to be able to see him give his life for us. The advantage that you and I have over John the Baptist today is that we know exactly why Jesus came, and we know exactly what he did and what he accomplished on that cross on our behalf. And our call is to embody that design as people who have been set free people who have been liberated people who have received the ultimate perfect gift like the perfect son of god died for you and he died for me even the least of these in the kingdom of heaven is greater than john is greater than john the baptist we live in the shadow of the cross church of people of unwavering hope that is our design we live in a season of expectation today for the return of Jesus, the same way, the same way that the Jews live in a season of expectation for the Messiah. I want to just close with this. I told you earlier we were going to come back to this. These kind of two passages here because it's so important. Isaiah, Isaiah 61, that Old Testament uh, prophecy that, uh, that Jesus kept quoting, and then here in Luke when he's in, the, when he's in the synagogue and he's reading it to his followers. But again, just, just really quickly. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. See this right here at the end. The time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. And then over here in Luke, when Jesus is reading the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogues in his hometown of Nazareth, He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. And it's a roughly different translation, but it's the same thing. Sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor have come. But then he stops right there in mid-sentence. The time of the Lord's favor has come. And with it, it's all one sentence. The day of God's anger against their enemies. Jesus reads and says, the time of the Lord's favor has come. Hard stop rolls up the scroll mid-sentence, which is easy for us to miss if we're just reading that on our own, rolls it up mid-sentence, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down. It's like the ultimate mic drop moment because everybody in that room knew that there was more. They probably were, they had it memorized and were in their heads were kind of saying along with them. And then Jesus just kind of stops in the middle of the sentence, leaves out the whole piece about the anger against their enemies and says, this has been fulfilled this very day. What Jesus was saying is, again, the way the Lord does things is different. The day of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of anger against their enemies. That Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill the day of the Lord's favor. And God said this, and this is true, that the day of his anger against enemies will come, where he is going to judge and he's going to set this world right. And everything that we have broken and messed up in this world, he's going to take it and he's going to heal it. And he's going to even the score and even the playing field and set everything right. But Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the day of the Lord's favor. There's still more to come later on. When he comes back later, there is more that God has promised and prophesied of what he's done. We live between the now and the not yet. The day of the Lord's favor and the day of the Lord's judgment. This is where we find ourselves in history right here. Jesus sat down and said, the day of the Lord's favor has come. Where do you and I live today? We are living in the day of the Lord's favor, church. Life is still hard. Tough things are still going to happen, but we are living in the day of the Lord's favor. There's been a promised perfection of creation later on that it's gonna happen, where God is gonna come and set everything right and make everything right and make everything better. All of the death, all of the decay, all of the pain, all of the brokenness, all of the addiction, all of the relational fallout, everything that we struggle and we fight against in our lives, Jesus is going to come back and he is going to set it all right. But he's gonna do it in his time. Not when we expect, not always when we ask for it, but in his, in his perfect time. A couple weeks ago, um, my son was having, a, was having a nightmare. My younger son, Max, was having a nightmare, and my wife, who is an infinitely better human being than I, got out of bed and uh, went, in, went in with him and was just trying to console him. And if, you, if you've been a parent, then you know, you know how that goes. But there's nothing more peaceful than, than a sleeping child and as a parent, when you see that kind of peace disturbed, it's, it's really heart-wrenching. And he was just struggling, and he had had some nightmare or perception of something that was going on in, in his life or in the world, and he just, it was, it was terrifying to him. Whatever that perceived reality was for him, it was terrifying in the moment. And then as good parents do, you know, my wife get in bed with him, and she wraps her arms around him. She's rubbing his head, and she's whispering in his ear and saying, buddy, I promise everything is going to be okay everything is going to be fine because she could perceive a greater reality than he could in that moment she knew beyond a shadow of doubt that everything will be okay and she was right and that's such a perfect picture I think of the way that God wraps his arms around us as his kids isn't it like ah, I know this hurts I know it's scary. I know that it's almost impossible for you to see outside of this, in this moment. But I promise that everything is going to be okay. And I promise that I love you and I promise that I'm here and I promise that I've got your back. The expectation for us as followers of Jesus is is that God can do what he wants, when he wants, and just as he's promised is that it's always gonna be to the benefit of those of us who follow him. Someday, somehow, in the grand scheme of things, God is going to take it all and knit it all together and work it all together for the good of those who love him. Amen? But God gets to choose. God gets to decide. Even what we're seeing happening uh, at Asbury University right now, if you're seeing now, we're seeing these pockets of revival prop up all over the country our country, the USA, all over the world. And like, just little things that, that God, for whatever reason, has just chosen to come. And it was nothing special or nothing profound. And no one was even this, like, what else was going on in the world? We had wars, we had train dramas, we had Chinese, balloons, you know, all this stuff. And then in the midst of that, God chooses to come to Asbury. And God chooses to come to these other pockets and places and spaces in time. God is good and he is sovereign. And when he comes, he gets to do what he wants. So our mission, church, is to rightly set our expectations in the now, in between the now and the not yet, and this season that we're living in, the day of the Lord's favor. Our job is to rightly set our expectations, to put him on that pedestal, amen, so that he's the only one who is worthy We can trust him. We can trust that what he says is good. John the Baptist, I can guarantee you today, is glad that he trusted in Jesus, is glad that he followed Jesus, has no regrets about paying the ultimate price with his own life to follow Jesus and to lay down his life for him. We can trust him and trust what he says and what he speaks over us. So I'm going to invite us today, if we could, just to stand to our feet at all of our locations. And just pray that very simple prayer today that God, you get to be God and you get to do what you want, but help me to rightly set my expectations on who you are and your word over my life. So let's just pray right now. Come Holy Spirit. And would you help us, Jesus, would you help us to rightly set our expectations on you and who you are? You are, you are all we need, Jesus. You are, the, you are the uncreated one. You are all powerful and all present with us. You never leave us or forsake us. Your word says that you stick closer than our brother in our lives. So, Father, in the moments of when we're, when we're imprisoned by life's circumstances, Father, we just cry out to you and reach out to you and say, Jesus, we trust you. We can trust you with our lives. From the mountaintops and the valleys, we rightly set our expectations on you and say that God that you are good, and that you are loving, and that you are kind, and you have declared the day of your favor over each and every one of us, over your church. God, we walk in your favor today. We walk in triumphal procession, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the road that you have called us to walk, in the land of milk and honey, and in the desert seasons. Father, we say and declare that you are good, and that you are Lord above all. We rightly set our expectations on you this morning, Jesus. We fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Holy Spirit, would you anoint your church and your body at all of our locations today to embody your design for us to be people of hope, Father, to carry that light into the dark places of this world, all the places that you have called us to. God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness in our lives and we pray in your name, amen.